we, the collective societal we, need so much. Our health, our health systems, health equity are an embarrassing, unacceptable mess. I'm old. I'm 70, and I'm at the end of my life. We need our young people, our adolescents, and our emerging adults to be healthy and take over to do what we couldn't or what we haven't. You must be living in a total bubble not to see how the mental health of our young adults has suffered. It's scary at risk. The problem has stared us in the face for a long time. But now, in this COVID world, it's undeniable. We can't ignore the personal, family, and community stress and isolation. We're falling behind in access to professional services as clinicians and frontline workers leave their jobs or die during the pandemic. We need healthy, resilient, motivated, caring young adults to survive. For them to survive and for our communities to survive. I want to better understand what life is like now as an emerging adult. I can remember myself as an emerging adult, but that was a long time ago. I'm still a two-legged, cisgender, old white man of privilege with all the implied limitations. I wanted to start this series on emerging adults with mental illness to better understand what it feels like and what people are going through, people with lived experience with mental illness and those that support them. What do they deal with? What forces are at play? What are they trying to do? I want to start with people with lived experience meaning young adults or people who are recently young adults, and then parents and teachers, then professionals and community organizations, then policymakers and researchers, examining from the center out. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Loon a two-legged, cisgender, old white man of privilege who knows a little bit about a lot of healthcare and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of healthcare. Let's make some sense of all of this. In this podcast series... I'm going to be thinking about the sense of belonging, the sense of control, the sense of connection, trust, talk, stable home, confidentiality, access to supportive peers and adults, access to professional help, different kinds of treatment, inpatient, outpatient, home, family, school programs, self-management, tools that people have in their, their toolbox. This is the second version of this series introduction. Thanks to my stalwart podcasting cronies, Carol Blueweiss, Kathy Cox, Tanya Marion, and Amy Saunders, who ruthlessly critiqued the first version of this episode. 
I have already completed 11 interviews with emerging adults, parent, teachers, doctors, researchers, community health programs, system administrators, and have six more scheduled and will probably add more as I meet people with experience and investment in this challenging dilemma. I will now share clips from the first three episodes. Then I will tell you stories from my history with adolescents, with behavioral health, with inclusion of, and partnership with people with skin in the game. Finally, I ask you to listen or watch to the end as I continue my new feature of Nuggets from the Mind, a recommendation of a resource I use and value. Since we all have different brains and take in information differently, you can find an article-grade transcripts for people who primarily read, a podcast for those who prefer to listen, both on my website, episode number pod 185, along with references and links in the show notes, plus a video on YouTube at YouTube at Health Hats. If pressed, I recommend the video. Let's listen to three clips from the first episodes in the series. Amika Chima, a young man on the autism spectrum with paranoid schizophrenia, his mom, Erica Blair, and Annie Schneider, a young woman with severe depression. I'm grateful for their willingness, no eagerness, to share their experiences. I don't know what it feels like to have psychosis. What did, what were you experiencing that you knew something is like really messed up here? It all started in um, my junior year of high school. I was turning 16 the fall semester. And that's when things started going haywire. I was uh, hearing voices, auditory voices, and I was seeing things like visual hallucinations. And I could not understand, like, what, what was happening to I didn't even know what psychosis was at the time. Right. So I, I, did, I did not know what was happening to me. All I know is maybe I need help. Okay. You heard voices, and at first they were just voices. You were hearing something. And then you realize, well, your mom's not hearing them, or other, you know, kids in school aren't hearing them. They were voices to you mm-hmm. man that's really disconcerting mm-hmm. so that must have been like really lonely i felt alone probably 90 percent of the time i knew i had my parents there they were my best allies but i don't think they would ever know how i was feeling because they they never dealt with schizophrenia they never dealt with psychosis you must be a proud of your son. Very, very, very proud of him. I am so honored to have him as a son. He is not only a great help and support um, to myself and our family, but he just he um, has so much to give to others as well. Mm-hmm. It's just very inspiring. So Emika welcomes you speaking with me about your your journey together yes but there it must have been 
a transition that happened from everyday parent-child tension and conflict to this kind of teamwork that it seems like you Mm -hmm. have. Can you Mm -hmm. tell us something about that evolution? Well, I guess we have to step back to when he was first um, diagnosed with schizophrenia and he had his first onset, his first psychotic episode. It happened as a teenager, um, even before that. So he was diagnosed with autism as a child. I always kind of knew something was, you know, there was some um, social and sensory thing because academically, they felt like nothing impacted him academically, never got any help from the school system. But he did end up having a psychotic break because I think it was the combination of like the school is pushing him academically and then the, the social trying to fit in socially norm as a socially awkward teenager. It was very difficult. He had his first psychotic break. That was very devastating. It was scary because we didn't know what was going on. It was scary for him. He was terrified, scary for um, us as a family. And that's when he was first hospitalized. That, that came to his first hospitalization. Um, that went on. This was about 16. He was hospitalized. It was just, it, it was, it's a very, very difficult time. I mean, as a parent, to see your child go through that, and he is such a wonderful child, to see your child suffering like that, it's the most heartbreaking thing. Um, I was also pregnant at the time with mm-hmm. twins, and so it was really hard on my pregnancy. It was just a very, very difficult time. But I just made an effort. I wanted to get him better and get him help. You know, that was my focus. That's all mm-hmm. I wanted to do. I can remember when I was 15, over 10 years ago, um, things were not right. And I, I was not really my best self in just a lot of ways. I was struggling a lot. And I think my parents noticed it in me first, but eventually I very quickly saw a lot of it. Um, I was really unfocused in school. I had quick temper. I had just a lot, a lot going on that was not healthy. And of course, you know, many people, when we're teenagers, of course, you have your mood swings and, you know, all kinds Mm -hmm. of normal things. We're humans, we're all humans, but I was not like other 15 year olds. Um, So it turned into a lot of like, I had a lot of preoccupation and obsession with like negative thoughts and negative thought patterns and unfocused in school. My, my mom would report, you know, later on, I find out from my mom, she of course didn't tell me in the moment, but Later on, I found out I just, I kind of had a very like glassed over, glazed over look on my face. And then my eyes a lot of the time, I didn't have a lot of, I know it sounds kind of cliche and kind of dumb, but I just didn't have a lot of my spirit. Um, I was, it was kind of a shell of myself Right. Um, starting at 15. At least that was when it turned into a care journey to recover and get well. Now a word about our sponsor, A Bridge. Record your healthcare conversations with doctors and other clinicians with a bridge. Push the big pink button and record. Read the transcripts or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com, A-B-R-I-D-G-E.com, or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Let me know how it went. While I'm not an expert in emerging adults or mental illness, 
I do know a little bit about a lot of healthcare, and I care deeply. I can contribute by producing this series. Perhaps I can share some formative stories that heightened my sensitivity, awareness, and passion about starting with, listening to, and partnering with emerging adults and people with severe mental illness, and approaching thorny problems with an integrated community collaboration. For formative story one, I'm grateful to Dick Argus, Chief Administrative Officer, who trusted and partnered with me, and Greg Frito, then Administrative Director of the Adolescent Program, who welcomed me into their inspiring world. I was working at the Boston Children's Hospital leading the Patient Family Experience Initiative. The Adolescent Services had an adolescent advisory panel. The emerging adults with severe medical challenges on the advisory panel had a lot to say about the services they received, and they were able to welcome new emerging adults to the services and help them navigate. The process of the advisory panel also identified and mentored new, younger participants on the advisory panel. For formative story two, I'm grateful to the late, great Bob Doherty, then Executive Director of St. Peter's Addiction Recovery Center, SPARC, who often blew my mind and took many chances with me. I worked for SPARC, an organization that both provided behavioral health services and managed behavioral health services for an insurance company. I was Director of Quality Management. One of the measures we had was outpatient follow-up within 30 days after an inpatient discharge. It was a quality measure we were required to track as part of NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, that monitors health plans. And frankly, we stunk. I think it was something like 17% of the inpatient discharges were followed up in inpatient treatment within 30 days. At first, we made the attempt to fix that on our own, and we weren't successful. So my boss pulled together an integrated community initiative that included emergency departments, paramedics, EMTs, firefighters, police, social services, housing, food banks, and we worked on this together, identifying people who cycled through services, heavy users of services, and collaboratively coordinated case management. This integrated support of people with behavioral health crises led our outpatient follow-up within 30 days of an inpatient discharge to go from 17% to something like 75%. Quite a success. For the last formative story, I'm grateful to Chris Gordon, Medical Director, and Keith Scott, Director of Peer Services at Advocates, Inc., who opened my eyes and my heart to everyday neurodiverse people. Advocates supports about 23,000 people with disabilities. They had people we supported on our board and operations committee. When I started working there, there was a gentleman who had some kind of paranoid schizophrenia on the board. I went to my first board meeting and presented some satisfaction survey results that people who were cared for in our group homes were less than satisfied with these group homes. Our scores were poor. 
This gentleman started talking for good three to five minutes, which sounded to me like stream of consciousness. I really didn't understand him. But I noticed after about 30 seconds that nobody looked troubled or rolled their eyes. People listened intently with no interruptions. When this gentleman stopped, the medical director who was facilitating the board meeting stopped and said, well, you really had a lot to say there. Why don't we take a minute and try to process what you said? And there was a minute, a minute of silence. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? I was really startled. But after about 30 seconds, I started replaying what he said, and I could start seeing some threads in what he said. After that minute, I realized what we realized together. This gentleman was talking about how hard it was for residents in our group homes when a staff member would leave and there would be no notice that that staff person left. All of a sudden, a new staff person appeared. It freaked people out. Such an insight. We didn't ask any questions in our surveys about that, but when we took what this gentleman said and let people know that so-and-so caretaker or caregiver was leaving and introduced the new person in no time, meaning the next time we did a survey, our results were dramatically better. Perhaps you can now see where I've gotten my perspective, passion, relative expertise about engagement and partnership with people with lived experience who know process and are included in that process, whatever their abilities and challenges and communication styles. All righty then. I lack a profound understanding of emerging adults with mental illness, so I intend to learn from producing this multimedia series. I hope you will learn with me and appreciate that we here are all real people, not faceless. We so need each other. No one has a complete picture. No one has all the answers. I hope this series motivates us to explore, empathize, and partner for action. Thanks for joining me for this series introduction. Let's see what we can learn in the Circus of Healthcare. Now, for a nugget from the mind, a valued recommended resource. Bethany Yeiser of Cures, C-U-R-E-S-Z, Comprehensive Understanding via Research and Education in Schizophrenia, introduced me to Amika Shima, and Amika introduced me to his Erica Blair. Cures envisions a future where schizophrenia and related psychoses are widely accepted as neurobiological brain conditions and can be prevented, treated, or cured with restoration of wellness and full functional recovery. The organization and website offers many resources, including treatment checklists, research, information about treatment, and a mentor network. The site provides guidance for clinicians, patients, and families, and people like me seeking to learn. I especially like the treatment checklist that includes setting treatment goals. The quarterly newsletter provides a variety of useful information for any stakeholder.
Check it out. C-U-R-E-S-Z dot org. I host, write, engineer, and produce Health Hats, the podcast. Kayla Nelson provides website and social media consultation and manages dissemination. Joey Van Leeuwen supplies musical support, especially for the podcast intro and outro. I play Barry Sachs on some episodes alone or with the Lechuga Fresca Latin Band. I'm grateful to you who have the most critical roles as listeners, readers, and watchers. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com and my YouTube channel, D-V-A-N-L-E-E-U. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. See you around the block. Thank you.